0: From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this
1: is Backstory with the American History Guys. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Ballow, and I'm here with my buddies, Peter Onuf. Hey, Brian. And Ed Ayers. Hey, Brian. In 1989, Karen von Langen was working as an architect in New York City. That November, she was immersed in the final phase of a competition to design a public building in West Berlin.
2: I was in my office working, and someone had a radio on. And the news came across the radio that the border at the Brandenburg Gate had been opened. It was a huge shock. I was so surprised that we went and found a television.
0: At this moment, we are taking you live to the Brandenburg Gate and the Berlin Wall. Brandenburg Gate, of course, is in East Berlin, and the sound that you hear and what you're seeing tonight, not hammers and sickles, but hammers and chisels as young people take down this wall.
1: This is really a scene of happiness. The wall is still standing, as you see, but the wall is political rubble. Because today, the government of East Germany announced that its borders are open. That announcement, it turns out, was a bit premature. Earlier that day, East Germany's leaders had decided they would soon ease travel restrictions between East and West. They wanted to stop street protests, and they also wanted to slow down an exodus of East Germans to the West through Hungary. But the spokesman tasked with announcing this news hadn't been fully briefed, and he mistakenly told reporters that the changes would take effect immediately. Within hours, thousands of East Germans were swarming the Wall's checkpoints. No longer ordered to use force against the people, the guards had little choice but to let them through. One week later, Karen van Lingen was living in a
0: loft apartment next to the western side of the Wall. Five floors up, she could look out across the no-man's land on the eastern side that had for almost 30 years separated the two sides of Berlin.
2: And my... A very particular memory of that period is at night, listening to people chipping away at the wall. It's um, tick, 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 tick. So you end up two or three days later finding these small holes all over in the wall.
0: There was nothing inevitable about this remarkable chain of events. It came as a complete surprise to people on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Earlier that year, the East German leader, in fact, had predicted the wall would stand for another 50 years at least, maybe 100. And so when the wall did fall, Berliners were absolutely ecstatic, as well as
1: surprised. For weeks,
0: all-night parties raged in the streets.
1: But at the same time, it was becoming clear that the profound social and economic divisions between East and West were not going to fall away with the wall. Karen tells one story about the cars that East Germans were accustomed to driving.
2: There were uh, these small German cars that were called Trebes, and they were very, very simple cars. And if you saved up your money and you had a slightly better job, then you could Get a car, and it was a very prestigious thing to have a car.
1: And then came November of 1989.
2: And suddenly they drive to the West and see these super duper Mercedes, and, and they feel ridiculous in, in these small little two button cars. You turn it on, you turn it off, there's a windshield wiper. And so each month that I went, I'd hear another car story or another story like this where uh, people were trying to adjust to becoming someone else, something else.
0: Today, Berlin really is a unified city. You'd be hard-pressed to find anything but small differences between East and West. But reunification was a process, one that took its toll on both sides. Westerners were shocked to discover the level of deprivation that their fellow Berliners had faced for years. Easterners, for their part, were also disoriented. They found themselves in a city that was both familiar and foreign.
2: There was a lost generation in there of young people who were coming of age in in the East, had grown up in the Eastern system of education and training for jobs that would not be there anymore, And some of them make it, and some of them are able to adapt. But a lot of people were not, and it was very hard on them. Very, very hard.
1: Conflicts like the Cold War, conflicts that span generations, they can take on kind of a lifeless quality in the history textbooks. But in the immediate shadow of these conflicts, life has gone on. Children have grown up, shaped at least to some extent by the narratives of conflict that surround them. And so what happens when those conflicts end? How do people learn to live alongside their former enemies, and in a sense, to live alongside their former selves? These
0: are questions we'll be considering for the rest of the hour today. We're marking the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall with a show about reconciliation and its limits through an American perspective. We'll consider the difficult process of reconstructing the South after the Civil War and consider the relationship between Reconstruction and Reconciliation. We'll hear about a detente between two New York City gangs and about what that truce enabled. And we'll discuss reconciliation with a person who survived the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and still remembers every moment of
2: that terrible day.